Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 73rd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Sherry Fitz. Sherry is the founder of Shoe Fitz, a marketing consulting firm for financial advisors, and is also the chief marketing officer for Sheridan Road, a Chicago area advisory firm that works primarily with qualified plans and has nearly $13 billion in assets under management. What's unique about Sherry, though, is her particular focus on how to craft unforgettable marketing strategies to really differentiate yourself. Right down to the fact that as the founder of Shoe Fits Marketing, she gives away colorful socks as a gift because it's unique and that makes it hard to forget. In this episode, we talk in depth about how to leverage and maximize marketing ideas from the importance of trying to craft your own memorable and distinct marketing initiatives, why it's crucial to align the marketing of the firm with the kind of business you want to grow towards in the future, the importance of systematizing your marketing processes so that you can measure and refine them. And why it's so important to have a staff member who is formally responsible for marketing your firm, even if that means 75% of your marketing costs are actually staffing costs, and only 25% of the budget actually goes to the traditional spend on marketing itself. We also talk about Sherry's own path as a marketing consultant, how she decided to make the leap from a traditional corporate job to going out on her own as an independent consultant because she didn't want to be buried in managing people, the ironic challenge she faced when her independent consulting firm grew so quickly that she once again found herself in the position of managing people, and how she restructured her firm once more to allow her to focus her time on the tasks she enjoys the most, which I think has parallels for most of us as advisors too. And be certain to listen to the end, where Sherry provides her own perspective on the fundamental difference between sales and marketing, and why advisory firms need to cultivate both in order to succeed. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Sherry Fitz. Welcome, Sherry Fitz, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, what a great way to spend some time. I'm looking forward to this. Totally. I'm I'm excited to have you on. I was trying to remember when I first crossed paths with you. I, I think it was probably some conference we were both speaking at like 10 plus years ago somewhere. So I, I was probably doing some really nerdy tax law topics. I was doing a lot of that stuff then. Like I guess I still am, but I, I was doing a lot of it then. And and you were speaking for marketing, and I wish I could remember more clearly. There there was some reason that you had to follow up with me, and you did by sending this box, and I've never forgotten this. Like you sent this box, and I think it's just a it's a a thing you you do that had like some care package goodies and a pair of socks because <laughs> your name is. Jerry fits and the business is called shoe fits. And so, you know, if the shoe fits, you've got the right socks for it. And it was this cool pair of socks. And it was like, I have, I have never walked away from a financial advisor conference with a care package that has goodies and socks. This is cool. I know. I love socks. I, well, I love giving them away. They're surprising. People find them delightful and, and I've made them into kind of a collectible situation. So if you see me year over year, sometimes you get, sometimes you get collectible pair. Oh, cause like mine were, 
mine were blue with like some white lettering and stitching. So is there like a color assortment? Uh Is there a color assortment now? There is. So the first, the first kind of pair were bluish with brown polka dots on them. That was the first iteration. Then the second iteration was brown with blue polka dots. And then interestingly, you got a pair that were supposed to be kind of a little bit different, but I can't believe that after continuing to tell my sock guy, make sure you get the the yarn color right. He keeps making it wrong. So you have a you have a you have a special run pair because oh, is this, is this like is this like when you find like a, a coin and it was minted wrong? It has an error that makes it exponentially more exactly, valuable. Exactly, exactly. Because there's only two hundred pair of those versus oh, a thousand sweet. of the other pairs. Yeah. Is there like how do you end up going down the road that your financial advisor marketing kicks off with socks? Like I, I just, they've, they've stuck with me for 10 years. Like this was a very <laughs> memorable experience, See? which I, I guess it like literally is part of the point of good marketing, right? Like it, it was a memorable experience. Like how do you get to, I want to do more to market my business supporting advisors with marketing. I've got an idea, socks. Well, here's you, we both are speakers, so that is definitely how we touch base. And I actually feel like the first time I met you was on Twitter. Well, that's possible. I think I was stalking you on Twitter, which, note to people listening, social media works. We're kind uh. of examples of that, right? So I speak, and one of the things I love to do when I speak is actually get people to learn things. <laughs> and the way that you get adults to learn things is to get them to kind of talk about it, try it on, et cetera. So when I am working to engage an audience and get them to answer my questions and or offer up an idea or whatever, you've been there. You ask the audience a question and it's crickets. And then the trick is to not say anything. And finally, somebody says something and I give them a pair of socks. And then all of a sudden, everybody's like, oh, there's a reward here. And that's how the socks happened. Well, and when I named my business, I named it Shoe Fits Marketing, not because I have a thing about shoes, although I do. I like boots. But it's because I didn't want to name my business Sherry Fitz Consulting because that's kind of boring, right, for a marketing firm. And I said to my friend, well, besides that, nobody knows how to spell it. So every time I call a place, I'm like, "It's, it's your shoe fits with two T's. And he said, there's the name of your business. And I went, huh, rather curious, but it's playful. And there's a lot of metaphors. If I were in your shoes, you know, you know, kickstart stuff, hit the ground running. There's so many metaphors for shoes and, you know, whatever. So the sock thing was just a natural, fun little progression. Once once the shoe fits, the, the socks just come into play. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And they're fun. I love I feel like if you're going to give somebody a tchotchke, give them something that's good. Give them something that they will actually use. I am not, and I have a blog post floating around in my head, Michael, about about pens. Why are you giving me a pen? Because if I'm enough of an office supply geek, because I am, I have pens that I order by the you know carton from a place in Japan but I'm not much of a geek. Giving me a pen is not delightful or surprising. And then if it's not delightful or surprising to me, then the average person, this is just a throwaway anyway. Why do you give them a pen? So anyway, I'm a big fan of making sure that tchotchkes or gifts are actually really used. 
Yeah, we had a guest on a couple of weeks ago named Barry Glassman. He's an advisor actually here in the DC area, not far from where I am. And and he kind of has a, a similar thing that he he loves doing gifts, but he he like he hates he has this thing. He hates doing gifts that have the company's logo. His whole philosophy is like send something a thing that is so like that's so meaningful or cool or neat or just interesting and different that they're going to keep it and they're going to remember us from you because it was just a unique thing that they kept and they'll remember it was you. And if they, and if it's that powerful and they want to keep it and use it because it's useful and valuable, like you don't have to slap your logo on the the coffee mug or the pen or all the other stuff. So he goes and, and buys like stuff off of Kickstarter that he thinks is neat and sends it to people just to create those kinds of distinct sorts of gifts rather than just all the logo stuff that, we tend to do. I, I know our firm, Pinnacle, has pens. We joke sometimes about the Pinnacle <laughs> pens, but like we're guilty too. We have Pinnacle pens. It's very alliterative, but it's not very popular for clients. That's ideally. I also love to read, and oftentimes I have a stack of books that I give to people that is not my book, and I give it to people because it meant something to me. And I do think that giving a gift, one that is valuable or thoughtful, is so much more impactful than a tchotchke. But beer koozies, really? Unless unless that's like a really good fit for a particular niche that you're serving, then maybe it's okay. If your niche are Green Bay tailgaters, okay. But short of that, <laughs> yeah. probably not. Exactly. On, on the beer koozies. Favorite books you like to gift to people? Well, there's one book that's by Donald Miller. And I know you're going to ask me what the name is. And I sent the last one. Oh, it's story. It's story brand. He's the story brand guy. He's the story brand guy. Yeah. So I guess his book's something else. He's the story brand guy. The book is a million miles in a thousand days or a thousand days in a million miles. I forget. But essentially, it was okay. before he got into the story brand thing, it was way before that. It was the second book after Blue Like Jazz. And the backdrop is, is, is that he wrote this book, Blue Like Jazz, which is actually based upon his experience at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. Whoa. And he was writing the screenplay of that. And essentially he was sitting there on his couch, you know, fat and lazy and yabba, baba, baba in a way. And he was thinking to himself, what's the deal? I'm writing this screenplay of my life. I can pretty much write the screenplay of the life that I want. So what he decided to do was ride across the United States on his bike. So he just started to use this idea of writing a story and started to write his life. It's extremely lovely book. It's very moving. And it just kind of goes to the power that we have of recreating ourselves. Or you may as well write the story that you want to live kind of a thing is the, the shtick. Very cool. I'll make sure we put a link to it in the show notes as well. A million a million miles in a thousand Something like years. That, yeah. For folks who are listening, this is episode 73 of the podcast. So if you just go to kitsis.com slash 73 and you scroll down to the show notes and the resources mentioned in this podcast section, we'll make sure we've got a, a link out to Donald's book as well. You know, it's funny. I've, I found myself in a similar path that, I mean, I read lots of business books and industry books and such as well. But the one I find myself sending to a lot of people lately is Greg McCune's Essentialism. Oh, yeah. Which is... Which is another one around this kind of themes of the personal journeys and and, and transformations that we're in. I, I don't know if there's something there that like 
we're gifting books that help people reshape their lives as opposed to just like you, you talk about marketing, but you didn't give specifically a marketing book. Like I talk about advisor stuff, but I tend not to actually give away advisor books, although there are a bunch of really good ones. There's something about that, like trying to give a book that helps to transform someone. I don't know. feels good as the giver. Like this had a lot of impact on me. I hope it has a positive impact on you too. Yeah. Uh-huh. I love essentialism. I had that at a stack the Donald Miller one, Essentialism, and then it's the Jay Bear, Jab Jab. What's the one that he oh, wrote? Jab jab right, jab, jab, right Hook. Yeah, Jab, Jab, Right Hook. It's really kind of about like a really great book on social media, whatever. It's a little dated, but the thoughts are good. I like that one a lot as well. And then anything by Seth Godin. Yes. <laughs> yes. Just, Brilliant just a man. Random Seth Godin book. You can have that. But yeah, I yeah. like to give yeah. things that mean something to me. Yeah. And hopefully mean something to the, as impact the person who gets it. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about just your world. We've kind of talked a little now about all, all, all things marketing and socks and the speaking you do around marketing and handing out socks as a gift, which I really like. I'm now like riffing on this theme myself and being like, so if I, if I call on people in my audience, like, do I have to start handing out blue shirts? Oh, see, that'd be so cool. Or you could do some cool shirt shape post-it notes. People yeah. would die for those. Cause yeah, that's, that's a little bit easier to throw than like an actual blue shirt. I mean, yeah, shirts are light. It's not quite as light as a sock, but like you can cram that in your suitcase and take it home with you. You should totally get like one of those online shirt places, right? To have your brand of shirt. Yeah. Right. You know, it's like your color, like exactly that. Cause they're those kind that. Well, apparently I have to not use your socks guy because your socks. Yeah, the color will the be off. Color. It'll, so it'll be you, green. If you can't match the blue shirt color, it's not going to be working. So, okay. Yeah. I guess people can let us know if they're listening to this. Like if you think I need to start giving out like kids' blue shirts as party favors and speaker gifts, let me know and we'll, we'll figure this out. Anybody who can get into the post-it note thing and get one that's kind of like this square, lovely blue square post-it note thing. I think that'd be cool, too. I think I might have to do it in charge of. All right. That's fine. Just, just mm-hmm. you know, send me a big stack of them and a bill. I'll, I'll, I'll pay it. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit more about what do you do? You, We've always said little. You do a little bit of marketing consulting stuff. You do a little bit of speaking. Actually, I know you do more than a little bit because we we cross paths with some regularity on the conference circuit. But can you just talk to us a little bit more about you know, who is Sherry Fitz and what do you what do you do these days? How do you describe yourself? Well, I will say one thing. How I got into the world of marketing was because I had a sales goal. And I say that because I I'm not the standard kind of marketing person who has come at this from being like a brochure warehouse kind of a thing. And, and that speaking was a piece of me working to try to meet my sales goal way, way back when. So, but now where I am in my kind of career is that I do speaking and training around the idea of marketing and branding and digital And I've been doing a lot around client experience. I'm really passionate about the fact that in financial services, we spend a lot of time in our heads and think that that's how we're going to convince people to work with us when we need to be in our hearts, because that is the place that will help move people to make decisions and change behavior. And so I feel like our brand and the world of our brands needs to evolve And so I see myself sometimes, and I'm sure you feel this way too, sometimes that I am preaching. 
like I have the word of, you know, brand and I am preaching, please change the way we brand because we have got to be more accessible because we have more Americans to help. So I do a lot around that and client experience and how it all kind of connects together. And then I'm known for this digital stuff. I mean, I started training people on using LinkedIn back in 2006, but I don't think what I'm trying to get my world of financial services to understand is it's not just digital, it's everything. It's how you show up. It's even down to your little tchotchkes. So I do a lot of speaking. I love to speak. It's what's that book, The Big Leap or something. There's some some term called the zone of genius. Have you heard of this? I don't think I know this one. The zone of genius. Yeah, there's this zone of competence where you're good at something. There's this zone of excellence where you're pretty darn good at something. And then there's this zone of genius. It's what you were built to do. Okay. And I believe that I was built to be a teacher in our world, right? And to to quilt these ideas of marketing and branding and financial services and client experience and try to quilt them together to make it meaningful to an advisor to kind of get them to do something different with their brand or their messaging. I really believe that's true. And so I do that. And then I also, I kind of think of myself as like a marketing coach in that I'll spend three hours with an advisor or an advisor shop. And I tell them what I was do, what I would do if I were in their shoes. And I make them start with, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they're like, I just wanted to talk about marketing. I didn't want to get all (laughs) woo-woo. And I'm like, sorry, we got to start here. I need to know what you want to be when you grow up. And so I do that. And then, you know, I have, I pivoted a while ago. And I think, you know, before we turned on the record, you asked this question. So I, my, my firm started out as a creative services firm to serve the financial services marketplace and help with a variety of things. Our clients were broker dealers. We built huge portals full of content galore for advisors to use, advisor shops, websites, articles, white papers, whatever kind of the financial entity needed, we did it. And then a couple of years ago, I was sitting there and my email was piling up worse than it had been in corporate America. And I had a staff and I had an office and I had, you know, obligations and I had, you know, credit card debt. And I was looking at this going, what have I done? I just wanted to be a speaker, but I think I was not brave enough to just leave corporate America and say, this is me. I think I had to hide behind this marketing thing, but regardless. So I stopped doing that creative services part of my practice. I have a ton of people that I love and adore who do that and I can help people do that. My expertise comes in strategy, messaging, understanding where the intersection is with digital and really kind of knowing how advisors think and talk and, you know, I you know, know their world. So I kind of blew up my business and now I just do speaking and training. And then I'm also a chief marketing officer for a firm out of Chicago. So they get me most of the time and I get me the rest of the time. So I negotiated to still keep my speaking practice and my coaching practice. Sure. And and what's the name of that firm? That's Sheridan Road Financial. Okay. They're an institutional consulting firm out of Chicago. They're in the Midwest predominantly. Like big Big 401k plans, employer retirement plan, that that yep. that kind of investment consulting institutional business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 13 billion in assets. They're big, smart <laughs> group of folks. Yeah. Really fun. Yeah. All right. So I, I've I gotta ask, you know, you like the 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 story you were telling of of you know, I was in corporate America and making a good salary, but having all this stuff piling up and all this work and all these emails and, you know, meeting to death and all the things that we, 
tend to not like about corporate world. Like I, I think a lot of people find themselves there at various points. Frankly, I know a lot of advisors that were there. And part of the reason why they went and became an independent advisor was because they wanted to get away from that and be able to control their their world and their their destiny a little bit more. I'm just curious, like what how did you actually make the leap? Like, was there some precipitating moment that was just like, okay, I'm done. I'd like this is it right here. I'm going out on my own. Or was it just more gradual? Like how do you how do you actually make that transition for yourself when You've got the job and the salary and there's some downsides, but it's stable. Like, how do you make that shift? <laughs> yeah, you got the job, the salary. I was, uh, I ran the marketing channel for LPL's retirement plan effort. It was fun. It was right after they acquired another big RAA and there was a lot of change and there was a lot of opportunity and I had a big sandbox and it was delightful. And I'd fly out to San Diego every Monday and fly home every Wednesday because I live in Portland. I still live in Portland. So I have been saying even before I started at LPL, even before I started at the place beforehand, I've been saying that when I grow up, I want to be a speaker and do my own thing. I've been saying that. And, you know, Grant, yeah, that takes a lot of chutzpah to kind of make it happen. It's one thing to say it and the other thing to do it. And so I got my AARP card and I went, well, I guess I'm grown up. So that was one. The second thing was, this is hilarious, but I went to Burning Man. After after you got your AARP card? It was the year I got my AARP card that I also went to Burning Man. I was like, well, well, this is the year. I mean, it's a big deal. You get your AARP card when you're 50. If you don't know yet, you guys, this is what happens. They are, they are, they are preparing you for retirement. So <laughs> they send you the card. You, know, you have to admit, like, it's a quite a testament to the whole institution that just there's this thing now when you get your card, like you don't even have to say I turned 50, like just I got I got my ARP card. It's like, oh, <laughs> oh, okay. You've seen I some know. things. <laughs> I do that. I do that as a subtle way to try to like let people know what my age is. Anyway, so I got that. And then somebody asked me, so I went to Burning Man and everybody's like, what's Burning for the first time? I've been there now. Well, I feel like for, for our advisor world, like our clients get ARP cards. We probably know that one. You may have to explain Burning Man for a few people, though. Okay. Burning Man is this festival in the desert in the summer. So it's it's the last week in August. It's an art festival in the desert. When I first started going, there were 40,000 people. Now there's 70,000 people. The project for lighting of the Bay Bridge in San Francisco was a Burning Man project, as an example. They do like big, huge art installations. You go out there and some of the art installations are like three to seven stories tall. And then some of them, they burn down. So imagine 70,000 people going to a three square mile area and creating a city for a week and then leaving and leaving no trace behind. There are no garbage cans there. None. Like there, there's all these kind of ethics behind it. In fact, Larry Harvey, the guy who started Burning Man, just died this past week. But there's 10 principles. And one of the principles is radical self-reliance. And the other one is radical creativity and radical acceptance. And there's a variety of other ones. And, you know, it's in the desert in the summer. It's hot and it's actually in a desert that's very basic. It's playa. So most of our world, we live in this acidic environment, but this is really basic. It's really dry and sometimes windy and you have to kind of wear, you know, a mask. So think Mad Max, Star Wars, Star Trek, Museum of Modern Art. Let's see what else. And maybe, mm, I don't know. 
a food truck place all together in, in one a, place. In the desert. <laughs> in the in desert. desert. Uh huh. Yeah, in the desert. So think you can't drive a car unless it looks like it's an alligator or an octopus or a squirrel or like my camp is a snail. I don't know why we have snails in our camp, but we have several snail cars. So you can't drive that like you can't. So everybody rides around on their bike. Anyway, it's really kind of some people say it's life changing. I will say it is. I know because when people first started telling me, I was like, this is ridiculous, but it is life changing. At least it was for me in that I finally got to just be myself, exactly myself all day long, every day for a week, like no emails. No, yeah, nothing. You just sit there and you watch creativity go by all day long. You ride your bike around. If you're, you know, you can't buy anything. There's no, people think there's bartering and it's not bartering really. It's like people show up with an intention to give. So as an example, I always end up doing hot dogs like five times where I stand out in the middle of the desert and hand out hot dogs to random strangers. It's quite hilarious. Anyway, la la la. Um, look it up if you want to know about it. I need to do a webinar. I think an advisor webinar on Bernie yeah. and you can, you can build a whole little village of it for yourself. And then, you know, I could write that off. I'm there you taxes, go. If you can get advisors right? to come out with you, Bernie man, right <laughs> off. But just so take me back to this. So like you're, you are running the marketing channel for LPL's retirement plan business. Like you are, you know, mm-hmm. you are crushing it in corporate America, broker dealer world. You get your AARP card and go to burning man. And then, and then dot, 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 two years later, I leave. So somebody asked me, well, what's Burning Man like? And I said, it's kind of like life, whatever you want it to be. Like, however you want to make it, that's the way it is. So when you wake up at Burning Man, you can plan your whole day. You can go, you know what? I want to go to the French Quarter. You know what? No, I want to go listen to a TED Talk. There's TED there. Oh, I want to go like go out to this art thing or I want to go to this steel thing. They, they, you know, they have an iron works out there as an example. So I just got to a place where I was like, I can't say when I grow up, I want to be a speaker and do my own thing one more time and live with any kind of you know, credibility or whatever, just self-respect. So I said to a girlfriend when she said, well, when are you going to do this? Because it was July. And I said, well, if I haven't given my notice by December 1st, 2012, tell me to shut the up. (laughs) If I keep talking about my dream and I haven't done it by this date, then you're allowed to tell me to shut up, dear friend. Yep, exactly. Exactly. And so, and then I went and got a business coach and I said, Vicki, this is scary. Just get me through the fear. I'm doing this. Just let me get through the fear. And so December 1st, 2012, I started my own firm. And how did you get through the fear? <laughs> Lots of prayer? Like how? <laughs> like you did it. You made the leap. Like Vicky's amazing. Like uh-huh. how do we contact Vicky and what did she tell you? <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a leap a lot of people n- never actually make, right? We think about it. We talk about it. A lot of people never actually make that leap. Okay. So dear advisor, dear financial advisor, here's what happened. My financial advisor told me how I could do it. Take my 401k balance, transfer it into a solo K and loan myself $50,000. So there I had my budget for the, for the first year. I took my part of the house payment because my husband still kind of split everything 50-50. And we, we, it's hilarious. We still split everything 50-50. I gave him my part of the house payment for a full year. 
so that one, I didn't have to stress and two, neither did he about at least that major part of our life together. And then I had the rest and then I made a silly little website and then I, it's kind of like what those, those silly little Vista print things where people are sitting there waiting for the phone to ring. <laughs> oh yeah. And the, like the, like the first, the first visitor comes to the website, there's a little blip and then another one, and another one. It's like, oh, okay, I think we're going to make exactly. it. Well, and I already had, you know, I mean, I had some visibility in the industry, in my, in the 401k industry, cause I was there. So thankfully I had some good friends and somebody said, do you want to come, you know, Hey, we have this advisor thing. You want to speak and da, 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 da. And then, and then there was another broker dealer that was really kind of pushing their 401k side. And I knew somebody who knew somebody and they brought me in and my team in to build the whole portal there and then wash, rinse, repeat. And then, you know, so there was, and then I, when I speak, obviously there's an opportunity. People are like, I want me some of that. And so there was an opportunity for people to reach out that way. So yeah, but fast forward three and a half years later and I was like, I've just recreated my corporate job. Yuck. <laughs> because it, it worked. Yeah. <laughs> you started getting clients and then all of a sudden there were a lot of emails and things to respond to. I had to be a boss and then I had to manage clients. <laughs> yeah. Right. And and then, you know, so a couple things. One, I don't want to manage people. I've never, I've never aspired to be a manager. Mm-hmm. I would say I've aspired to be a leader. I think there's a difference. Yeah. You know, I've aspired to be a servant leader, but I've never aspired to be a boss. Yeah. I'll I'll admit I go through a gone through a similar path that early in my career, I mean, I was kind of on that growing manager track and had this department of people and had to learn to develop them and give them reviews and all the things that you need to do to be a manager. And I didn't like it at all. Like it just I it, it gave me a much, much deeper level of respect for good managers. Mm-hmm. And a very clear reflection that I was not one. And like I'll admit, I think for me, that was part of what led me to make a transition that I decided I I wanted to shift, I guess, well, now almost 10 years ago to say, all right, I'm going to keep one foot in the advisory firm because you know, I, I like doing I like doing the technician stuff. I like doing some of the strategy stuff that I'm good at, but I don't want to be responsible for managing all these people. And so you know, that for me was the transition of like going out on my own and being a writer and speaker. And now I'm involved with a lot more businesses, but I do all of them with partners. And one of the reasons I do it with partners is I find partners who are ready to help manage people because <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to do that part. It's just, it's, it's not my skill set. Other people are much better at it. So I try to find other people who are better at it and let them do that part. Delman Louise, Batman and Robin. There's a reason why. I think if I if I were to do it over, if I were to rethink the creative services portion, obviously I would get a partner. And creative services is an interesting thing to kind of do also because it's very subjective as well. And I have very strong opinions on things. As an example, no pens, no holiday cards. Wait, wait, no... No holiday card. We already killed the logo pen. Why are you killing my holiday cards? Well, because I would prefer to celebrate holidays like today. We're we're taping this on. What's today? Star Wars Day. Done. May the 4th, <laughs> May the with 4th you. be with you. So I sent out an email blast about happy Star Wars Day, right? Or happy Chinese New Year. It's the year of the dog. Of course, I sent pictures of my dog. But I 
those things are memorable and unforgettable, but is a holiday card really remarkable and memorable anymore? And is that kind of the theme and the angle for you? You know, the, the, we're not sending a holiday card. We're saying a star Wars day card and, and, you know, we're not saying logoed pens, but we're sending socks. Like the whole angle for you is, is about, like the, the distinctiveness and the memorable nature of it. Yeah. I also think it's the surprise of it and the delight of it and the difference of it. And I think, you know, if we were thinking about this from a financial advisor perspective, from a marketing perspective, I think that's the hard thing is, is that they're like, well, we need to send out a holiday card and then we need to send out, uh, you know, this kind of thing. And we need to do this because that's what everybody's done for. We need to show up in a suit and a tie you know, and, you know, a red tie with a black suit or whatever it is. And I think, yeah, what I'm trying to say is the reason why when I talk to people, Michael, and ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because I really want to find out what you want to be when you grow up and how do we take that to fuel and energize your marketing versus what you think it's supposed to be. Sort of like an, an expression of authenticity. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to go and give you another marketing strategy. I want to help you figure out what you want to be when you grow up and let's just help you better market that. Yep, exactly. Exactly. I guess I, I have to hope that the thing I want to be when I grow up is actually marketable. (laughs) Right. I mean, like, is there a sort of fear of that? Like, well, yeah, if I'm just naturally really marketable, sure. Let's market the thing I want to be when I grow up, but I don't know how to market that depending on what it is I really want to do. Right. I'm imagining, well, I, I mean, I guess even in your case, although obviously you, you worked through this, right? I, I don't imagine a lot of people saying like, what do I want to be when I grow up? I want to have more freedom and go to Burning Man. Let's make a financial advisor marketing business. Right. But you did. Mm-hmm. So clearly like there's a a way these things bridge when I think some people would probably feel like they're counterintuitive. I, I feel like for a lot of advisors, either I don't know what I want to be when I grow up or like I I know what I want to be, but I'm, I'm afraid no one wants to pay me for that. Right. Okay. So exactly. And I think that that is kind of one of the challenges. And so I will say this is that I'm not for everybody because I'm certainly distinct and different. And I do have, you know, an edgy hippie Portland side to me, but I also know that people really crave, I hate to say this transparency and authenticity because those are overused words, but people really crave like realness and real human conversations. And, you know, that's why they like this podcast because you get to have something more than, and on Thursday, send out your 200 emails and then, you know, Friday, follow up with a phone call. And next Thursday, prep your holiday cards. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, the thing that there's so much space in, in our world of financial services to be able to really get, this is me preaching to get to the heart of the matter. People are scared. They are hopeful. They're afraid. They're all these things. They have all these emotions associated with it. And then unfortunately, what we do is send them a holiday card or a form to fill out when really what they need is, and you know, this is, is they need, they need a therapist. They need a confidant. They need a conciliary. They need a counselor. They need a pastor. They need somebody there to say, all right, I got you when it comes to this money thing. And we got this. and. And I'll take this challenge. I feel like I could figure out, and it's not really a spin, but I could figure out an authentic brand for just about any kind of advisor, even if they were the geekiest of the world. They'll just do a lot. Well, I mean, I guess we do a version of this. I've 
like think of myself as a fairly geeky guy. So we just celebrate Star Wars Day and Pi Day, March 14th, if yes. I realized it. And like you just kind of embrace it and have fun with it. Right. And and you, you wouldn't believe because I sent out I have about 7000 people on my email list and I sent out my, you know, happy Star Wars Day. And there was a picture of Yoda and my favorite Yoda quote. What is it? What's your, what's what's the best Yoda quote? Do, do or do not. There is no try. Uh, see, I sent it out. You would be surprised how many people responded and they're like, rocket, I will. That's what somebody said that, that, that somebody said that's what they say to themselves before they jump on stage. Kathleen Burns Keatonsbury. She's like, yes, How can I will. I mean, there's so many people who are geeks just like us. There's a lot of geeks. Well, and, and I let the let the geeks rule the world. But, yeah, I mean, I think there's something more fundamental even to that. I don't know. Like it just it's it's one of those things that takes us a while in life to get to that that. If you're going to get to your authentic self, you have to get to the point that there will be people who don't like your authentic self, and that has to be okay. And I, I think that, to me, is the, at least the the blocking point I see for a lot of us. Is I think particularly in the advisor world because it's like we're always in the mode of prospecting. We're always in the mode of trying to find clients, which means. We're always in the mode of trying to watch out for what we're saying and that we're not going to say something that offends someone and, you know, and kind of f- forget, like, unless you got some just really radical views, like anything you say that offends someone, there will be someone else who completely agrees with you, who likes you more than they ever did before, because we tend to like people who agree with us. And so when we try to equivocate and go down the middle of the road to not piss off anyone, you know, you may succeed in not offending anybody, but you also fail to connect with a lot of people as well, because it just kind of comes across as a boring person that has no particular views about anything, which is sort of computerish and not very engaging. And you know, like when I look at a lot of people who are just really successful at kind of building brands and building connections, you know, one of the striking things about them is. They do not equivocate with middle of the road views very often. Like they, they tend to state strong views around something, and you know it becomes polarizing, and it means some people won't like you, but it means some people mm-hmm. do. And you know, if you're an advisor, those people who do business with you. Yeah. So as an example, I sent out this email, and the subject line was WTF, <laughs> and it was what the font. Now I did do an A/B test, so in marketing shtick right now. So what I do sometimes is when I send out my newsletter, I'm not sure really what subject line will result in the most opens. And, you know, I'm desperate. I do want to be loved and I want people to open my newsletters because I spend time writing them. Absolutely. And so, and so I test my, sometimes I test my subject lines. And so I tested WTF and then I also tested what the font. Now, what the font to me was a little chicken as far as I'm concerned, because it was really clear what I wanted to do, but I tested them both. And then WTF actually won. And that the open rate, by the way, for that particular email newsletter was 25%, which is pretty <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, that's a, yeah. 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 And I guess just know that the open rate of a newsletter, if it's anywhere between, you know, eight and 13%, you're doing good. I mean, and that's, and I think people think that that's bad. I'm sure that yours are probably higher than that because, because your content is so quality that people are used to the quality content 
you know, so my average is around 16%. Anyway, somebody emailed me back and said, I would never use such a ploy to get people to open my email. And I would never hire a marketer who even tried that. And I was like, thank you. Because I'm not your person. Well, that's, <laughs> yeah, I was like, that's much better than you having hired me. And then we would have worked on this for work together for a while. And then we would have found out we really don't get along. So this saved everybody a lot You're of You're not time. my person. I think when I was looking for a job a long time ago, and this was before there was online stuff. And I remember sending in my resume. This was for like one of my first graphic design jobs. That's how I got into this industry. But sending in my resume, looking in the Oregonian, sending my resume. And then I get this lovely little postcard that was back like, thank you very much. We're not going to hire you. But I called those the thank you, bleep you, thank you postcards. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bleep yeah, thank you. you bleep thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. F you. Thank you. It's kind of what I was thinking. Right. So I used to say, well, the more of those that I get, the fewer that I will get. But it was fine with me. I kind of was like, fine. So when I when I was at a place with my copy and with my stuff that I was sending out, that I started to get trolls coming back to me, being grumpy about what I was writing, I was like, I've made it. <laughs> I have a big enough reach. I have a loud enough voice. I have a position that... Some people don't like, and that is really actually good because I'm out there doing something. So you said you went down this road for a couple of years. You you broke away from corporate world. You made your independent business. Then the doggone thing grew. <laughs> Hate it when that happens. Then suddenly you had people to manage and a high volume of emails again. And I'm presuming that we're starting to get unhappy since that was kind of the whole point of what you were leaving in the original transition. So what what happened next? Like, did you retool the business again? Yep, I did. So I blew it up in that I got rid of my beautiful office with brown walls and Asian lanterns. And then I, you know, got rid of my employees and my, you know, standable desk and everything and came back home to my you know, solo office and focused solely on my speaking and training, solely on my speaking and training. And I was in, so that was like July and I was in New York in that December time zone when I was out there, you know, doing business development, whatnot, and visiting a variety of financial services firms. Cause they're usually the ones that hire me are, you know, the, the mutual fund firms or the retirement plan platforms or the insurance people or whatever. Those are the ones that usually hire me now. And so I was out there doing a, I always try to work to get to New York for a sales week right after the tree is lit up in Rockefeller Plaza. <laughs> Cause I like New York then. So if it's my job, I asked my boss and she said, fine, go. So anyway, I was there and I got a, a call from one of my former clients that said, we think you should come to work for us. And I was like, huh? Cause then I felt like in a way, and you can understand this. And I felt like, wow, I'm admitting defeat as an entrepreneur. Like I'm, you know, I'm admitting defeat and I still, you know, they're a great firm. I have a ton of respect for them. They are really at this place in the 401k world where they are leading the charge in so many things. And I am so much a geek in that world that that is what got me was that the organization and what they were doing seemed so appealing to me that I needed to 
And I also thought, frankly, that being embedded in an advisor shop like that from a career perspective would really serve me well, you know, because I could see from the inside. I've always worked in corporate America consulting to and for advisors, but to be inside an advisor shop and do some things like we're starting our own RIA right now, right? And I, you know, that's not anything I've done before. And so I'm learning an awful lot. And then, I mean, there's, you know, who cannot want to spend a day with Jim O'Shaughnessy? He's like, he's like the Seth Godin in my 401k world, right? He's, I have like that kind of a brain crush on him. And so I decided to give it a shot. And then, but I also said, I got to keep my shoe fit stuff going because it really is like, I really feel like I have a purpose and what I need to bring to the marketplace and how I, I can't just not do this. So they were cool. It worked. It worked really well. They, you know, they were cool. They couldn't really have all of me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> the polite way to say it, right? Well, it's, it's, it's cool to be, to be able to get to a position in your, in your career, in your business where you can make that call. Like, thank you for the offer. I don't want your offer. I'll do a version of your offer. Here's what it would have to look like. Let me know if that works for you. Yeah, it does. You know, yesterday I got up when I'm in town, I walk five miles a day. I get up really early and then. It's a good way to get your 10,000 steps. uh Exactly. But there in the Midwest, I'm on the West Coast and I get up early. So I'm having conference calls at 630 in the morning when I'm walking and it counts as work. (laughs) Right? I, I, well, granted, I usually don't make five miles, but I do the same thing. I, I call them, I literally call them walk and talks. Like that's what I'll tell my wife. Like I'm going out for a walk and talk and I'll, anytime I've got a longer conference call and I'll just throw on the headset and, and kind of wander around in our neighborhood. You know, there's kind of, if I wander all up and down the side streets, I can get in a couple of miles and just talking hour or two of talking in a comfortable stroll. You'll still do like a good two, three, four miles of, of walking, if not a little bit more. And, and I just have to accept that there are probably a few neighbors in my neighborhood that just think I'm like the weird guy that walks around the neighborhood and talks to himself I know, for hours me too. at a time. And I don't care. So in, and in Portland, I'm at the base of this extinct volcano called Mount Tabor. And so if I go, I have a, and I try to race the sunrise up the hill in the morning when I can. And so I have a five mile loop. And then like yesterday was, my workout with a Pilates trainer. I have a bad back, but I have time. To me, I have to work out because my back, if not, my back will win and my back cannot win. And so I am addicted to Pilates. And so when I'm in town, I work out with a Pilates trainer three times a week. So I walk over, she kicks my ass and then I walk back and on those walks over and back, I'm talking, I'm doing work, I'm texting or whatever. And then yesterday I had a lunch meeting and it was lovely in Portland, 72. And I had a conference call on the front side and a conference call on the back side. So when all was said and done yesterday, I had, I got 13 miles in and it, <laughs> and all of it, all of it while working. That is a good right? series of phone calls. Yeah. yeah. So it worked out. I mean, and I count my blessings that I am, I am at this place in my career where I do get to kind of figure out and make it work. And I, I really do count myself really fortunate that I am working in an industry that I love, that I'm doing stuff that I love, that I still get to keep moving, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I, I could ask that, did it like that shifts? And I guess I'm thinking more of, well, both having grown the consulting firm larger and then kind of dialing back to saying, no, I really just want this to be built around, around me. I've, 
I've written about this theme on the on the blog more than once as well, that there's this phenomenon in the advisor space that I call the accidental business owner, which is, I think, particularly in both the RA channels and even the BD channels as as we go in more and more fee-based. You know, in the past, like advisory firms never really grew all that large because Every January 1st, you woke up, your income was zero because you hadn't sold anything yet. And we were all in commission and like maybe had a little bit of trails from a prior year. So you could pay your sales assistant. But like we never really built up big businesses as as independent advisors because you don't have very many staff when your income is zero every year. And, and you can only make so much money based on just how many people you can see and the average size of the thing they buy from you. And then we created this AUM model. And... The cool thing about the AUM model is it's recurring revenue. So after you've been doing it for a couple of years, you wake up on January 1st and there's a pretty good number of clients who are going to pay you a pretty good amount of money as long as you just give them awesome service to keep them around. So you hire some service-minded advisors, you give them awesome service to keep them around, you go get more clients, and then you hire more service advisors to help to help serve them. And like you can build and scale up a business until suddenly you're managing a whole bunch of employees and you don't actually get to do very much financial advising anymore because you're mostly in the people management business, which, as we said, you, you don't like doing and I don't like doing either. And, and I know a lot of advisors that don't like doing that. Right? We, we did this to be advisors, not to manage people. And the point that I think most of us get stuck, though, is it feels like a failure to go backwards. Yeah. Like, I don't know how to let go of some clients. I can sort of figure that out. I guess I can sell them to someone or, or just refer them out. But I think the even harder piece is like, how do I take employees that I've worked with for years and tell them like, you don't have a job anymore because I've decided I don't yeah. want to do it this way. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you that a couple of things. I remember, I mean, I remember driving by my office. It was in this really cool co-office space, but we had our own office inside and it was this place called Hatch and it really high ceilings and really bright. And it was a B Corp thing and it was owned by a woman. It was really hip and it, you know, it was on the beginning of the Green Mile in Portland, Oregon, which is another kind of interesting conversation to have. But, but you know, and I felt really proud of myself. I'd done all the things that I thought I was supposed to do. You know, I had a sign and I had a cool office and I had business cards and I had employees and you know, I had all, done all that stuff that from an expectation perspective, I thought this is what you're supposed to do when you're an entrepreneur. And I remember driving by my office, I don't know, maybe a month later and pulling over. My my husband had never been in there, which is interesting, but, you know, pulling over and going, you never came in here with me, which is, you know, but the other piece of it was, is that it's like, it was sad. It was very sad for me to kind of like, yeah, I felt like I was a failure and and I really felt like there were a lot of people that were counting on me, you know, and it was really great for them that they got this wonderful, flexible gig with this, you know, person who didn't manage them at all, <laughs> you know, and they were great people and I respected them a ton and, you know, but, you know, I could have done it two different ways, you know, and I, and I think that that there could have been another way where I could have said, what I need to do is get an ops manager. You know, I need to get a CEO and I need to just me be the chief, you know, strategy officer or whatever. You know, I'm going to be the creative, you know, person and they're going to run the business. You know, I think that there is certainly a way to do that. When I look at like as an example, Sher Sheridan Road is 
Jim is like the brains and then Daniel is like the dude who's running the business and they figured it out, you know, and, but I'd always said, I'm already married. I don't need another, you know, husband or wife. And I was really scared of that. And I think that limited me in a way, but I'll say that everybody is on their feet. They're talented people. I still keep sending business to a variety of different writers and designers I worked with. And I feel like I am doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing right now. You know, and it's still, I still kind of keep thinking though, and I'm sure you asked this question, like, what does all in look like? I know I've, we, we were talking about my podcast and it's going to kind of go through an iteration. And it's going to be reinvented and all that stuff. And I think about my podcast and I think about as an example, what does all in look like when it comes to that particular project? I kept asking myself that as it related to shoe fits. And I kept thinking, well, all in looks like an office and all in looks like employees and all in looks like a sign and then, you know, website redone. And, you know, and maybe that's not really true. Maybe all in looks like something completely different for me now. How are you defining it at this point? Yeah, exactly. I have no idea. I mean, it no. sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds great. <laughs> but it's something that I ask myself regularly. Yeah. And I think as it, you know, I, and I can kind of get a little carried away with it, but you know, I think right now for me, all in looks like trying to continue to find time so that I can create for shoe fits. So I get up earlier so that I can write in the morning to create for shoe fits before my job starts and they get all my creativity, which they deserve, frankly, but I still need to carve a piece out for me. So lately what I've been doing is really trying to carve a piece out for me earlier in the morning where I can write. Speaking of that, I'm sure you've talked about this, but I haven't heard it. How do you, what's your ritual around writing? I want to know. So ritual around writing for me, so I became a fan of kind of the the concept of time blocking of like specifically carving out chunks of time where you literally write on your calendar like this is creative time because otherwise just particularly my world these days and all the businesses like the emails never, ever end. They never, ever end. And, And that's after the fact that I've shifted a lot of that email to Slack. So the Slack messages in the email really never end. So the only way I could carve time to write is I started by kind of blocking off multi-hour chunks. And what I actually ended out doing and has kind of been my guide for the past probably two and a half years now or so is I literally make a calendar for myself for the year. And I set one primary thing on my calendar each day. So this kind of comes from, there's a, a famous analogy. I first heard it as a Stephen Covey analogy. I don't actually know if he originated it or not, but the idea of it is, you know, so if you envision like a big jar in front of you, you have to bear with me since we're audio only here. So visualize with me like a big Mason jar in front of you. And next to the Mason jar, there are a couple of like big rocks that are almost the size of the jar. There's uh, a handful of pebbles and a big pile of sand. So the big rocks are the few big things that we typically have to get done day to day to week to week to make sure that our business is growing and succeeding. Pebbles are the fairly sizable things that come up from day to day and week to week in the business that you have to deal with, that you have to solve, that you have to address. The sand is basically all of like the email and the continuous chatter that happens in our world. That's just this like, steady drumbeat of stuff and there's 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 a the pile of sand alone is larger than the entire jar so you can never deal with all the sand 
And the point that Covey makes is the way that most people do it when they manage their time, the jar is supposed to represent the amount of time you have. We all have the same 24 hours in a day, 168 days in a week. Most of us, we take the jar, we fill it mostly with sand. Then we deal with a couple of the pebbles. And by the time we get to the big rocks, there is literally no more room inside the jar. So they just sit on the side and they never actually get done because they got drowned out by all the sand and pebbles. So the right way to do it, I guess the right way, the right way to do it is you put the big rock in first when the jar is empty because now there's room. Then you put in the pebbles. Pebbles will kind of fall to the side around the rock because there's some room in the jar. And then you pour the sand in last. And by definition, the sand will still manage to fill every single crack and crevice around the big rock and the pebbles. But you're only going to get in as much sand as you can after the big rock and the pebbles have filled the jar. And you're not going to get to everything because you can never get to everything because there's always more stuff than there is time to get to. But if you always place the big rocks first, then kind of by definition, you will always be getting done the things that are most important to actually move the business forward. And so I fell in love with this as, as just like an analogy of time and time management and how to think about your day. And so I, I literally have a calendar for the year and every day is marked with the big rock for the day. So Friday is my big, my, well, so Mondays, my big rock is team meetings. I try as hard as I can not to take any speaking engagements on Mondays. I don't do any writing on Mondays. Occasionally I'll do a podcast or a consulting call. But most of the time, Mondays are all just all of our internal team meeting days. So I, I've like, as the team's grown now, like half a dozen meetings just lined up with people I interact with, both my personal team and some check-in meetings I have to do with some of the related businesses. Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays are then a little bit more of variable big rock days. Sometimes they're client days because I, I, I still have a couple of client things I need to go out to from time to time for Pinnacle. Some of them are speaking days. If I'm on the road traveling for speaking that day, yeah, I'll still get some emails down the side. Maybe I'll hop onto a conference call or two. But like the one big thing for that day is I'm just going to get the speaking engagement done and survive the travel, which was not good some weeks. So like it's just a speak and survive day. We'll fill in the rest as we can. And then a bunch of those Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday days when I'm not traveling, those become writing days. And so I simply say like this is a day when I'm writing. So I'm, I'm, I'll answer a little bit of email on breaks. I'll check in with team for a few minutes at a time because, you know, you can only sit in front of the computer writing so long before you need a breather. But this is a writing day and that's my one big rock for the day. So I'm going to get started at the beginning of the day and I will finish this article by the end of the day. And that's the deal. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's how I manage my <laughs> whole calendar. Fridays are generally set for weekend reading. Most people who well, listen to the podcast, listen to or also read weekend reading. Like I do that live real time on Fridays occasionally I have to write it a little bit earlier in the week or, or partially write it because I'm going to be traveling. But I try very, very hard to only make Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays big rock days for speaking so that on Fridays I can be home. I can do weekend reading in the morning. I do some wrap-up team meetings in the afternoon or occasionally a, a podcast recording or like a short client meeting or consulting call. And then, and then I wrap up. You know, Setting those big rock days for me was really powerful. As as the metaphor kind of goes, and I truly found it, it, it's true. You know, when you when you set that one big task for for the day, you tend to make sure you get that one big task done. And it's amazing how much gets done cumulatively through the year when you actually make sure you get one important thing done every day. 
And conversely, it's kind of depressing when you think about how many days go by where you look back on the day and like, I did not actually get any substantive thing done. I was like answering emails and in team meetings and committees and all this other stuff. And I feel like I did not have a productive day. So, you know, like the system is designed. I always have one productive thing, one big productive thing for the day. And it usually doesn't dominate the whole day. It's not like I, I spent eight hours writing one article, but like there's always one big thing to make sure that I get done every day. And cumulatively over the year, it, it moves the business really, really far. And, and for me as someone that, you know, likes doing stuff for people, I don't like saying no, it actually became a really effective way for me just to manage total capacity after a couple of years of overcommitting myself more than I should. Because I just pull out that calendar. You know, someone says like, hey, we want you to come out and speak for this event and pull out the calendar. I'm like, I literally have no big rock days left. Like, I just can't. I cannot say yes to this engagement or, you know, hey, we want you to come out for a, a client meeting for this or a consulting meeting for that. I'm like, I cannot do a meeting that day because I have a big rock I have to get done that day. And there was not enough time left in that day for to do it. And so, you know, it, it kind of became a like, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Blame my calendar. But for me, as someone who's really bad at saying no, it became a way I could say no. It's been very, very helpful. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I use this metaphor all the time. So marketing is a succession of, of projects, even something little, whatever it is. I need to do this. I need to do this. I need to do this. And, and even thinking through, as an example, a brochure. Well, the brochure is a bunch of little baby steps along the way, or even a marketing plan, or even like writing a speech is just a bunch of little steps. I have to have a conversation with the meeting planners, and then I have to kind of do this, and then I have to kind of do this. And I, and when I think about it, I always think about the fact that I just keep moving the rock up the hill. So, so I use a rock metaphor, which is hilarious, but I just kind of move the rock up the hill. I think for me, for writing, I tend to, and I know this isn't really ideal. I wait for the muse to strike me and people who are as prolific at it as you, you don't wait. And, you know, like your Friday thing could be that the muse doesn't strike you for the rest of the week, but you've got this ritual embedded with your audience that they're expecting it. And it, you know, it's industry. I mean, the industry almost expects it from you. Right. So and I'll admit in a world where, yeah, you know, I've got this content calendar I'm committed to. So, you know, God willing, I keep my fingers crossed every time I sit down at that desk for a writing day. I, re I really hope the muse is hanging out with me today because we have to get this done by the end of the day because it's the rock. The flip side, though, is that you know when my when my schedule is structured that way, my brain like I don't even think about it consciously, but my brain starts prepping for that stuff. Like I was traveling today, but tomorrow is a big rock day for writing. I know it's coming. Like my brain will be germinating on something I'll probably write tomorrow through the rest of the day today. Like I just kind of know it's out there because I've set the routine, and and the brain starts prepping for it and. You know, same thing, like if it's tomorrow's a day of client and consulting meetings, like my brain just starts queuing up the stuff that I'm going to be working on tomorrow, right? I mean, we all tend to look, I think, look at our calendars, like, oh, God, what do I have coming for the week and what stuff do I have to do? But the, the challenge for most of us is we we so scatter it all together. It's actually really hard to mentally prepare for much because it feels like everything changes every couple you know, seconds and minutes and hours throughout the day. The nice thing about giving more structure to your day and week is it, it really does like it lets your brain 
get into more of a pattern and a rhythm and it makes it much easier to keep track of things. So I, I know advisors that do this just purely on the on the client side that do a very similar structure. In fact, I got this from an advisor who's like, does basically the same thing. Like Mondays is all of our internal team meetings and financial planning stuff and prep for the week. I only meet with clients on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. It's like, that's just, that's it. I meet with clients on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. And if they can't meet on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, I ask them if there's one next week that would work instead. And that's the only option. And Fridays is basically his wrap up. You know, go back in with the team, all the stuff that got done for the week, make sure everything is getting wrapped up the way that's supposed to start a little bit of prep work for next week. And, you know, those three days, like his days are packed. He runs just basically like eight or nine hours of meetings all day long, but he knows everything is prepped and in place. It's actually much easier to package in the meetings when he knows he's just going from one meeting to the to the next. Like he doesn't have to check in with the team during the day of like, did we do this thing or did we do that thing? Because we worked on a Monday or we're going to wrap it up on Friday. Doesn't have to think about the rest of the stuff because the only purpose of that day is that is client meeting day. And it's amazing how much easier it gets to work through just some of the mental prep. You know, the, the, we have all this research coming out now of why multitasking is bad, but I don't even think it's just a like short-term real-time multitasking thing. Like don't, don't check your email while you're writing up a financial plan. It's not good to flip back and forth between the applications, but I, I think it holds through the whole day that when you schedule too many different types of things in the day and you keep task switching yourself through the day, it takes a similar mental toll. And the the more you can line up common activities to a single day into a consistent routine, the the easier it gets and the more productive you get. Yeah. And that's why I work on attending to the writing before the noise of the day starts. Yep. Because for that particular reason, I think, and as an example, also for me, I block Fridays for my podcasts for that particular reason is so that I can at least chunk some of the things in my life, you know, obviously, because I've got two things going on, I can't really, I don't, can't control everything. Just as a side note, one of the things that I use, and I was doing it actually before we hopped on today, because I had 20 minutes and, you know, 20 minutes, it's like, well, I have to get one more thing done. For me, the problem is, is diving into one more thing. I'm afraid that I'm not going to be back out in time. <laughs> you know, you yeah. forget. So I use yeah. something called focus at will. Have you heard of that? No, I have not. Focus at Will. Focus at Will. So Focus at Will is an app that's developed by some neuroscientists and it's music. And it's music actually created to help generate alpha waves. So to help you focus. There's also a channel for ADHD that people have told me has really been successful for them. It's like a cacophony, but yeah. I've heard a similar thing called, I think, Brain FM. That's maybe a similar kind of system. Mm -hmm. it, it's supposed to be like just, it gives you background music, but it gives you background music that's supposed to help stir up the alpha waves. Yep. There's a couple of different, so there's channels, there's like, you know, there's like focus spa, there's like classical, there's like, and I like alpha chill or whatever. And you can create kind of what kind of, you want low, medium or high intensity. The thing that I like about focus at will is that I can go, I've got 20 minutes. And then that'll give me five minutes before I jump on the, you know, on the phone with Michael. So what I was able to do was there's this project. I've got to invoice somebody for a speaking gig two weeks ago. That's not good. That should have happened two weeks ago. But I kept putting it off and I was like, I've got 20 minutes. I'm going to get that invoice done. So I set my little focus at will timer. I stayed focused and I got it done. I love focus at will though. So when you do focus at will, like, can you set the timer like 
give me the give me the concentration juju music for exactly 20 minutes mm-hmm. and then stop it. Yep. So it goes ding to start it and then it goes whatever music happens. And then when it stops, it goes ding. So I can do, you know, like as an example, this afternoon, when I start working on a presentation that I need to deliver in a couple of weeks, I can set it. And I usually set it for like 75 minutes. And I make this commitment to myself that I will stay focused on whatever that is as an example, or if I'm writing and I'm like, I'm going to write for this period of time. The thing that I tell myself is that I'm not going to stop writing. I'm going to keep writing. And if I feel like I need to research something or I I have to add a web address in or whatever that is, I just put like X, 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 right. To hold the space. And I keep writing. I just like, keep writing, keep writing, keep writing. I don't let myself jump out and go, I got to research this. It's like, no, you got to research that later. Right now, what you're doing is writing. To your point about kind of task switching and stuff. I love it. I love it. I use it a lot. We will definitely put a link out to it in the show notes. So again, this is episode 73. If you go to kitsis.com slash 73, we will have a link out to focus at will. So like it's, it's, it's on your computer. It's on your smartphone. Yeah, it's, a, it's an app. I can access the site on my computer or it's on my smartphone. The only thing I wish I could do is get it so that I could download it. So I could do it when you're on the plane. You can't get it off, you know. Oh, because it's like, it's like, yeah, they need an offline mode. Right. Focus at will is a freemium, meaning they give you some stuff free and then you can pay up to get other stuff. I liked it so much. I actually bought a lifetime membership a couple of years ago, but don't fast forward through the songs like you're listening to a playlist because what that tells the algorithms is that that song distracts you. So then you have to kind of go back in and reset, which is fine, but read about the science of it. It's, it's remarkable and I love it. And it, you know, allows me to block and keep noise, keep myself focused and and to hold myself accountable. Like you cannot go check your email until this 65 minutes is up. So I'm, I'm curious, you said, I mean, you had this full career of doing marketing work, running marketing for advisors. You, you did it in, in large firms. You did it as an independent consultant. And then going to Sheridan Road was the first time you you kind of had to you had to do it from the other side. Like you had to actually be on the, on their side, on the implementation end of the, of the process rather than being on the consultant side of the table. So I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering now that you're, you've lived some of this from within a firm, are there like reflections you have looking back of, of like how marketing in an advisory firm is different than what you thought it would be when you were outside? Yeah, totally. Does that distinction make sense? Like, does it, does it look and feel different now that you are on the other side of this divide? Was the inside and the outside, was it different? I think that when I was on the outside, like, so as an example, either when I was at LPL or even when I was, you know, running these creative projects from Shoevitz, the way that we sold ourselves is we sold ourselves as your back office marketing department. So there was a full team involved. So the full team would be myself as a strategist and, you know, kind of creative manager. And then I'd have a project manager and a writer and a designer and, you know, even web thing or whatever. So we would be able to tackle a project like full on like, you know, I could get a white paper done in, you know, five weeks. The thing that's different about being on the inside is, is that I don't necessarily have that creative team right there. So, you know, I have to kind of navigate, you know, and budget, right. As an example, I've got to navigate some of that stuff internally to make some of that you know, happen. So it doesn't happen as fast as I was thinking it was going to (laughs) happen. I was really like, I'm used to making stuff happen really fast. In fact, I'm known for getting, you know, stuff done. And now I feel like I'm like, 
it's almost like a little bit of molasses because there's so much, it's a growing firm and we've got a lot of grow, you know, we've got about 50 people, but we've got like growing things. And, you know, I'm, I'm just one of many people I'm, you know, marketing is just a piece of the puzzle of serving clients and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So I wish it feels a little bit slower than I anticipated. That's, you know, one thing. I also think that, you know, we have multiple advisors who have all kind of different approaches to their clients. And so it's a bit, how do I bring that message together as one unified message? Still thinking that through. Any insights so far like that? Because that one in particular, I think, is a challenge for a lot of advisory firms. Like we, we either get it because the firm grows and you get multiple advisors and advisors do things different ways and then you can't figure out how to bring the marketing together. Or even just for advisors, if we build solo businesses at some point, like you get a bunch of clients of a bunch of different types and and you can't figure out how to do the marketing in a way that isn't going to feel weird or alienating to some subset of the clients that aren't that, right? Like I, I know it comes up most often when people are thinking, okay, maybe I want to actually start specializing in a particular direction or build a niche, but I have a bunch of clients who aren't in that niche. So like, what do I do? That that you know, that how do I weave unified marketing when I have different advisors and different clients is a struggle point for most of us. It's like, how, how do we, how do we do that? Or wh- what are you thinking, Elise? What's the working hypothesis you'll be testing? Right. Well, so, you know, I, you know, I think for me, I continue to try to take it down to, and this is not really the best thing, but it's like the lowest common denominator. And that's, I mean, that's a mathematical term. It just means that trying to find the underlying consistent theme throughout everything. And it's taking me a while because what is that underlying theme that works both from a wealth management perspective and a 401k perspective and an executive benefits perspective and all of that kind of stuff? It's like, what is that? And so the one thing for me, and I'm sure this is the way it is for you, is, is that sometimes I have to just let stuff marinate. Sometimes I have to just establish a creative question for myself and then I just have to let it marinate and then I'll be walking and I won't be talking and I'll be, you know, what, wherever or whatever, or I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll be like, that's the answer. I got it. But it takes kind of marinating and sitting with it. So I've been looking for what is it that our wealth management um, folks do and what is it that you know, our retirement plan advisors do and where's the consistency there. So I'm trying to get down to the kind of the consistent thing from a messaging perspective. And then the other piece of it is, is that now that I've kind of got that, now how do I build back up the marketing piece? And it's not, you know, for right now, our newsletter every week is is pretty much just an economic update because I've got so many different kinds of advisors. Right, right, right. And so what I'm working to do is teach them how to use social so that they can begin to create their niche in their area. They've got, you know, providing them content and whatnot so they can go down their niche to their specific folks so that it's like any kind of thing. I'm going to provide the foundation and I'm going to teach them how to kind of build their own rooms is where I am right now. You know, and I've been there, what, a year and a half, and it feels like I haven't gotten anything done. And then I've gotten a lot done if I look back, but it's still not as much as I wanted, (laughs) if that makes sense. It's like, yeah. Was this a new role for the firm to create like a marketing officer? A chief marketing officer Mm -hmm. position. I was just like, so how is that transition? One of the challenges I know, even that we've 
struggled with in our firm for years. You know, our our founding partners at Pinnacle were all originally at Signal Life, which back in the 80s and early 90s was kind of one of the very financial planning oriented life insurance companies. So taught lots of lots lots of insurance agents how to be financial planners and then some of them like our founders decided they actually wanted to just be financial planners and not sell life insurance anymore. So they left the insurance company and started an RIA and started just trying to get paid for advice and investment management and, and other stuff and not selling insurance products. And, you know, they were all pretty good at sales. They were succeeding in the insurance world. That was how they got as far as they did. They were good at it as we got growing in the early years. That was how we survived and grew because we had some founding partners who were pretty good at, at sales and business development. But I, I know for us, you know, like much, much love to our, our founding partners. Like we've struggled with sort of the difference between sales and marketing. And how to make those distinct. Because for us, like sales was selling and marketing was getting yourself out there more to be in more positions to be able to sell a prospect and get a client. And like even when we weren't selling products, we were selling ourselves in the firm. It was still kind of, you know, selling is what you do to close the client, and marketing is getting yourself out there more so you have more opportunities to talk to prospects who might who you might have a chance to sell. That's how we come at it from the sales world. So from the marketing world. How do you distinguish the way advisory firms should think about sales versus marketing? Well, I'll say a couple of things. So, you know, kind of, as I said, way back when I got into this world of marketing because I was a salesperson with a sales goal and I had a national footprint. I, I sold 401k education and communication materials that I had designed and the curriculum that I'd created as part of a actually an investment consulting firm in Portland, Oregon. That was back in 1998. But you know, my thing is, is that marketing is supposed to sweep the path for sales. The aha moment, I believe, for the firm was that hiring a chief marketing officer doesn't mean that marketing is going to get done. <laughs> and I say that because there are many components that make up marketing. So the first thing I did, I created a because I tend to be visually driven at first. And, and, and I my job, as far as I'm concerned, is to make Sheridan Road look as smart as they are because they are a gifted group of folks and really kind of driven and creating different kinds of things in our industry, in the 401k industry. But their their brand was dated, very dated. I mean, it's very, very common when I look at other advisor shops where they created a brand back in the 90s and all, all of a sudden it's almost 2020 and that brand is the same. And Well, it works. Yeah. They got, what was it? You said $13 billion. So like, can't knock, can't knock that too hard. After the first ten billion, you got to give credit, right? <laughs> exactly. So you know, I what I did was I came in and I did a couple of things. I worked to kind of up level our RFP responses. If we're going to spend time on it, we may as well make them better. And then the next thing I did was create a style guide. That's the that's like the investment policy statement for visuals. So it's the visual policy statement. This is how so that all the materials that I'm creating from here on out will look and sound the same. We'll have consistent, you know. Do we use an Oxford comma or not? We don't. We use the AP style guide as an example. So started with some of those kind of underlying things. And then slowly I'm chipping away at this rock. So now we've got some series of white papers where right now I'm working on a YouTube channel. People buy institutional 401k consulting from YouTube. Yeah, exactly. No, we don't. But we're going to educate people about things. So, you know, because okay. YouTube is the second largest search engine in the world. 
you know, I'd love to have a firm full of Michaels to write. That would be my dream. But these are these folks are all up to their eyeballs and institutional plans. And so I can do the YouTube channel on my own, right? Aligning with our partners and creating kind of content there that we'll be able to distribute to our clients and or prospects. So that's what I'm working on right now. We, we, we had this event, Daniel Bryant had a strategy before I started. So he's the CEO. He had a strategy of doing events. So I've kind of inherited that. So I'm professionalizing our events. What does that experience look like? And now what I'm doing is if we're going to spend all of this energy on doing events, educating plan sponsors, hosting, retirement income, education, things for clients and CPAs and all that kind of things, we have all that kind of going. But now what I need to do is marketing isn't about the one-time thing. It's about the ongoing thing. So what am I going to use to follow up? And so my YouTube channel is what I'm creating to use as an avenue to follow up with prospects and clients. By the end of the year, and I keep saying this, by the end of the year, we will have that expertise embedded in our organization. So we just started it. We're recording, you know, and then next year, I'm going to start fiddling around on the participant side or the individual side. So now I'm just focusing on the institutional stuff. Yeah, so that's kind of where I am. I underlaying foundation of our messaging and then add on helping advisors build their own rooms. And then now what I'm doing is we've got these events going. We've up-leveled that event experience, the registration, the follow-up, the you know, the agenda, the signage, all of the stuff that when you go into an event, you don't even notice it. But if it's missing or awkward in any way, you do. So we've got that locked in now. And now what I'm focusing on is, okay, we got that done. Now, how are we going to follow up? And how am I going to give advisors things to use to follow up? So we have a series of, what, 10 white papers we've done. We've got a couple of there in the hopper. So yeah. And, and again, though, it's not nearly enough. <laughs> but, you know, I'm a one-man band. Well, I'm not a one-man band. I have a colleague and she manages a lot of kind of the day-to-day stuff as far as the events goes. But when you hire a chief marketing officer, don't anticipate that marketing is going to get done. There are a lot of, there's writers, there's designers, there's web people, there's editors, there's, you know, printers, there's a whole marketing department that we were able to provide to clients because that's how I sold it. That now that I'm inside, I don't have right now. So I'm being really creative. It strikes me though, that just, I mean, the stuff that you're listing around just what essentially is, is being systematized around your marketing and all the things you do in every step of the marketing and then you know, doing the process improvement about how do we do it better and try better results. Like, you know, that level of detail is not something most advisory firms have time for or capacity for to, to, to do the, all the stuff that you said, but it, it indirectly to me, it sort of, it, it, it makes the point around like the value of hiring staff for marketing, the value of having a team member who owns marketing. Like, you know, most advisory firms, if you just look at industry benchmarking studies, most advisory firms spend 2% of their revenues on marketing or a little bit less, which is really low. Like software companies often do 10 to 20% of revenues in, in marketing. Even uh, I'd seen like even manufacturing businesses typically do four or 5% of, of their revenues in, 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 into marketing. And we do less than half of that you most of us don't spend much much dollars on on marketing and so we don't tend to build much staff infrastructure around it either and so marketing usually falls back to either being the responsibility of each individual advisor you know go market yourself or 
you know, a partner who has a little bit more of a penchant for marketing, who's kind of the person who does it on top of what usually is like seven other things that you're doing as a, a founder or a partner in a, in a small to mid-sized firm. And I don't know, just, it's, it's, it's interesting to me to sort of reflect like all the stuff you are talking about right down to, you know, wouldn't it be powerful for a firm if we actually had a standardized style guide? So everything went out the same way. Because you know you've got a couple of detail-oriented clients who notice these things, and you can't keep track of it all as one advisor in a larger firm. It's amazing what happens when you can just have a team member whose job is to focus on this. And you know we tend to do that with operations and with investments and maybe in a separate planning department. But so few ever have a, like a standalone full-time employee, much less a senior one at the level that you're, you're working that is just responsible for thinking about marketing things and how to do them well yeah, and systematized. Yeah. I know. And Jim O'Shaughnessy reminds me about that regularly when I'm like, this isn't moving fast enough. He's like, remember that we are one of maybe like two advisory shops in the United States that have a chief marketing office or whatever. So, you know, it is interesting to have somebody wake up every day and go, all right, how am I going to move the needle on our voice and our stature in the marketplace and this and that. And, I'll, and I will say that, you know, I like many aggregators, when I talk with the advisors that are thinking about joining us in one way or another, it really, it doesn't go unnoticed by those advisors that they, that they, that Sheridan Road has made an investment and a commitment to marketing, not just me, but my colleague, right? That doesn't go unnoticed. They're like, wow, they were smart enough to figure out how to get you know, Sherry Fitz or whatever. Yeah, it it helps. Yeah. Well, and and I, I mean, I think the message as well for firms that are thinking about this, growth rates are slowing for a lot of firms across the industry. And 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 it's leading to, I think, at least more interest from a lot of firms in spending money on marketing. And then everybody goes, well, what do you spend it on? What works? And the idea that instead of just trying to spend dollars on marketing stuff, you spend dollars on a marketing person whose mental energy can actually be focused on making this work in your firm and then giving them some budget because they, they need something to work with. But you know, like splitting your dollars between marketing spends and marketing staff, as opposed to just spending on marketing things, which I think is where most advisory firms tend to go first, I think is really powerful because otherwise you get the kinds of effects you're talking about. Like, yeah, we spent a bunch of money on marketing. We did some events. They went okay. It's like, well, did you execute them systematically? Did you have polished marketing materials? Did, was someone responsible for making sure the presentation materials look good? Did you have someone that was managing the venue to make sure that everything executed well and that the people who came to your event had a good experience? Did you have a follow-up process and someone to make sure that happened and hold you accountable? Like you just go through the whole list of all the things that actually have to happen for for an event to go well. And, and you know, usually it comes out to be like, oh, yeah, we spend a bunch of money to get butts in the seats for the marketing event and not a lot of attention on how to make sure the marketing event was actually run well with effective follow-up because no one owned that part. Right. Yeah. Well, and the other piece of it is, is that, okay, so you decide that as an example, something simple as executing, revamping your website, who's going to be the project manager internally to do that? So you may want to pay a firm externally to do that. And that external firm, if it were my firm, right, we would have a project manager on our side. And we started to notice that our more successful clients and projects was 
this needs to be assigned to an individual internally to manage the project from your side. We can't have multiple people. We're not going to manage you. We've got to have somebody manage this from your side. So even if it's just a project manager, because if not, then frankly, what happens is your cost goes up because the spin starts to happen. And then the, like, as an example, you know, we get like edits back and then, oh, but wait a minute. The CFO hasn't looked at it. Then we get edits back and da, da, da. So, you know, even if you, to your point, if you have, and frankly, if it were me, I'd say at this particular time, it should be 10% or more right now. But if you have a budget, yeah, I think a wise thing to do would be to kind of go three quarters of it, spend on a marketing professional. And then, you know, for the first year, 25% on the projects. If that person, you know, I'm lucky, you know, my first three months, which is kind of silly, was spent doing design. Now, that's how I grew up in this industry. I was a graphic designer, so I'm comfortable in that world. That's not ideally what you want your CMO to do. But the thing about it is, is that when you go to work in a small organization, you have to be able to wear a lot of hats. So I can write and I can design and I'm lucky that way, which also helps me when I do all my speeches and do my content because I can do that stuff. But But, you know, if you've got a professional that has some experience in one way or the other, that will just serve you well. And that's what I would do. I would say, you know, three quarters to the person, 25% to the budget to start out. Which is a big shift, right? To say like, you know, I was about to spend X dollars on events and you're coming and saying like, no, no, spend 25% of that on your event and 75% of it on a person to run it, make sure it goes well. Yeah. Because even if all you do is two events a year and they're executed like awesome and great and fantastic, and, and you are like, well, wow. And then you think, well, no, I got five clients out of that. That's a good ROI. Yeah. I mean, for most advisory firms, our typical client, you know, if you're going to retain them and they're going to pay whatever they're going to pay you for multiple years over time, like it doesn't take very many clients to get an absolutely enormous return on investment in, in your marketing. Yeah. So what's next for you personally? Like, is this your new stable point, one foot in? in an advisory firm and then one foot out doing speaking and training. And I guess still some consulting. You said like if you'll do strategy sessions with people for a couple of hours, but just you're, you're, you're not going to be the, their implementation person because you're, you're shared yeah. implementation yeah. person now. Where does it go from here? Are you, are you at a balance point that works? Yeah. I think, you know, who knows you ask, you ask me that yeah, in yeah. a couple of days, it'll be different. But I think, you know, we were talking before we push record. The next kind of thing that I have on my plate is, is that I have a podcast. It's called women rocking wall street. Um, it's been on vacation for a while. I've got some really cool things happening. It'll relaunch this September. And, and what's the focus of it? I mean, I can kind of infer from the name women rocking wall street, but. So essentially, you know, I think that we need more women in our industry because women are slated to obviously inherit a lot of the boomer money. And unfortunately, you know, we've got women in some pieces of the industry, but not in product development or strategy. And if we want more women to engage in our industry or with our industry, then we've got to create products that serve them and are meaningful to them, which means we've got to have women sitting in places that can have an influence on that. You know, I was thinking about this, even just kind of geeking out for a second. I was thinking about this. I was talking to a friend of mine about AI, okay? And AI, and while all of the voices of AI are female, all of the programming is done by men. Imagine AI coming into our industry and thinking about how we could change that wealth experience or just a portfolio experience or client gathering experience, like the questions that would be asked by that AI, if that AI is solely designed by a man, are going to be significantly different than what a woman might need. 
And that's going down a little kind of, but so I am really committed to doing what I can to be that kind of person to say, come to financial services, stay in financial services. I mean, it was a result of me sitting on a plane with a woman who said that she'd been tapped on the shoulder to come in and work as an analyst. She's got great insight into the medical devices community. That's where she works. And this firm went, we want you to be an analyst for our firm. And she went in there to interview and there were no women. And she's like, I I don't think I can do it. And I said, you have to do it. You have to do it. You have to work there. And so that's kind of what started my podcast. And I have guys on the podcast. I mean, you know, we need more women on boards. We need more women in leadership. We need more women product design. So I'm really passionate about it. So that will be relaunched this coming September and we'll see what happens. It's, you know, honestly, it's kind of scary because I don't want to just be in this. I don't want to be typecast in this. Now I just get to speak to women's conferences. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I'm like, I'm not that person. Yeah. You know? Unfortunately, our, our industry has a wee bit of a tendency to do that. <laughs> yeah. But I think I'm, you know, I'm pushing it, you know, so that will certainly change things for me a little bit. I think it'll make my circle a little bit bigger than, you know, where I am right now. I hope to. And then, you know, I'm going to keep speaking, whatever it is. And I'm going to keep, you know, walking and I'm going to keep running into you and, you know, all that stuff. Well, very cool. So as, as we come to the end here, this is a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the the whole definition of that word success means different people, different things to different people and even different things to us at, at different stages of our own lives, which I think you've very much kind of lived and shared that, that journey here of, of being successful in a corporate environment and then deciding you wanted to go independent and then being successful and independent decide you didn't like what that created. So rewriting a new definition of what success would be for you and what would make you happy in the business. And so you know, you you kind of intimated this a little bit, but I I do want to just ask you, like, as you look forward from here, like, how do you define success for yourself? I really think success means having space, space in my day, space to space to create, space to think. Oh, this is you know interesting. But I had a conversation with my husband last night. He's like, "You should make more money," and I said, "I choose to live in Portland, Oregon." And I've created a career for myself from Portland, Oregon. And I'm staying in Portland, Oregon. I'm an Oregonian, you know, and I can walk up an extinct volcano and I can, you know, get good coffee every day. And people actually know what a cortado is, you know, and and then I get to go out and play, you know, I get to go to Boston and D.C. and Austin and, you know, to your point, <laughs> the side of the road somewhere in Indianapolis to talk or whatever, you know, I mean, I get to, so I think success just means that I get to have a space to create. Very cool. I hope, I hope you're getting the good balance now. It sounds like you have, you've kind of found that balance point. You get your space to create in the morning and get to apply some of it with the firm in the afternoon. Yeah. It's a neat yeah. balance to have. I like it. I, I feel really lucky. Well, thank you for, joining us and and just sharing that story and that perspective on uh on the financial advisor success podcast i love it i love it thank you for having me absolutely our pleasure want even more ideas tools and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor check out the leading financial planning industry blog nerds eye view at www.kitsis.com 
where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.